0: I have been preaching through a series in the Gospel of Matthew, and I invite you to turn in your Bibles at this time to the book of our uh, Gospel of Matthew. And in fact, the section of the Gospel of Matthew that we have been examining over the past more recent Sundays is that in chapter 24 and 25. I'll ask you to turn to chapter 25 this morning. This section is known as the Olivet Discourse because just before Jesus is arrested, And will be subsequently crucified. Jesus and His disciples are seated on the Mount of Olives. Across the valley from the temple complex. And is there on this hillside. This Mount of Olives. Interestingly enough. According to prophecy. This will be the first place Jesus sets foot. When He comes back in power and glory to bring judgment. And and He will split. The valley with his power, he in his majesty, he it won't be just a quiet arrival. And it's interesting that his last teaching, if you will, with, uh, with his disciples in, in a private setting like this is this discourse in chapter 24 25. And as we have been examining this, Jesus is speaking of a specific time period. He's looking through the corridor of time, beyond His disciples then, even beyond you and me. A future time known in the Scriptures as the last days. The days just prior to Jesus coming again in His second coming. Now, we understand, those of us that ascribe to the notion of the rapture of the church, that Jesus will descend from heaven, but He won't come all the way to the earth. The next time He descends from heaven, He will come in the clouds. At the sound of the trumpet, the archangel will shout, and those who are alive and remain, the church at that moment, will be caught up in the air, in the twinkling of an eye, what we know as the rapture, and we'll be there to caught up with the Lord, and we'll meet Him in the air with all those who have gone on ahead of us. What a glorious home gathering, if you will, even in the clouds, and then we will proceed to go back to heaven with the Lord, and then all the events that we're talking about called the Great Tribulation will begin to unfold upon the earth. A great time of judgment, if you will, upon the, on the, on the world, the rebellious, sinful, uh, world that has turned its back on God, and God will begin to bring about uh, one wave of judgment upon the world there will be war, wars and rumors of war there will be pestilence there will be cataclysmic earthquakes and and all kinds of uh, cosmic effects going on stars falling from the sky meteorites at size of mountains crashing into the earth a third of the population will be destroyed a third of the life of the ocean will be destroyed a third of the the, the sea going vessels will be destroyed I mean this is how the, the magnitude of the the wrath of God that Will be poured out during these seven years known as the Great Tribulation, and then on the heels of that, Jesus says, "Then He will come," and that is His second coming. And Jesus is speaking to a generation that is even in the future. Maybe some of your grandchildren or great, 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 great grandchildren. I don't know how many generations. It could happen. It could happen in the next year, or it could be another century. But it's coming. The Bible says. And Jesus is describing to His disciples these things here that they will write under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that will be preserved as it is today and will be preserved until that generation comes on the scene. So the words that you see Jesus speaking in its context, He's speaking to people that haven't probably, maybe I'll say, maybe haven't even been born should He tarry in His coming. But people who will be living during that great tribulation, some of them will be believers. But many and most will not. They will harden their hearts toward God, they will endure the wrath of God. But nonetheless, Jesus is giving words of instruction to help people to be ready. That's the essence of what Jesus is saying to those who will be believers during those last days. He's given them a word of hope. Yes, it is terrible. Yes, there is a, a diabolical figure known as the Antichrist who will arise on the scene like no other worldly leader who will control the world, its economy, its military. There will be wars like you've never seen. There will be awful natural disasters that you've never even imagined. Yes, these terrible things are going on, but Jesus gives a word of hope to the believers of that day and saying, hang on. I'm on the way. It won't be long. It certainly won't be longer than seven years. But there are things that we can glean from this message as well. Don't tune it out just because he's speaking to a future generation. There's a lot that Jesus wants you and I to glean from this too. It's interesting. In Matthew chapter 25, and we're going to be looking at verse 1 through 13. It's interesting that Jesus, as He teaches again in a parable, and remember, a parable is a story. We all love stories, don't we? I remember as a kid growing up in the midst of a large tribe of kids in our Martin household, and one of the most favorite things in the evening, this is before computers and cable television and all these other things that we entertain ourselves with today, but my mother was a wonderful storyteller. And even great at reading stories. And I remember an old book that was so worn out, the covers were gone and pages were worn. I don't know, maybe she had it from her grandmother. But it was tales by Uncle Remus, an old slave. And it was tales about animals that were animated that were like made persons, if you will, with characters and, and wit and humor. And, and, and so we heard about Brer Rabbit and Brer Fox and Just cow and that, and we would just be hanging on every word. Oh, we love stories. I love stories now. I love to hear a good storyteller. Well, Jesus is using a story to teach a powerful message, and that's why parables are called these heavenly or, or, or earthly stories. People could relate to what Jesus was saying, but they had heavenly messages. And Jesus is interestingly enough, again using the backdrop of a wedding. Now, we all like a good wedding, don't we? I mean, my goodness, what a joyous occasion. What a great time to come together as family and friends to celebrate two people, you know, a man and a woman. Of course, nowadays, you don't know anymore after the Supreme Court. But anyway, we're going to assume it's a man and a woman and keep it that way, okay? And, and, and they're coming together for the, one of the greatest days of their life. And everybody is celebrating in this wonderful occasion. But, but Jesus is speaking here. And it's important as we look at this, this uh, story that centers around a wedding feast, to really understand and appreciate the story, you've got to understand the, the cultural context in which Jesus is teaching the story. Because, you see, in ancient Middle East culture, and, and still in Near and Far East cultures, You'll see a lot of these similarities in the components of a wedding. You see, a wedding in that culture was made up of three stages, if you will. And, and so it wasn't a quick event like most of American weddings are today. In fact, nowadays, I think you can even do a drive-through wedding. I, 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 hear, I don't know for sure, but I can just imagine that would be, you know, go up to a speaker and say, okay, do you have a witness? Yes. Do you take? Yes. I, do you take? Yes. All right. Sign on this uh, computerized iPod here. And I've now pronounced you next. Move on through. Pay at the next window. I, I know that's, that's, that's a far stretch, but, but, but a wedding was a big deal in the culture in which Jesus is. And and so the first stage of the wedding really was the engagement, and this this is really interesting because this is like a contract. The interesting thing is, and, and, and it's hard for us in the Western culture to relate to, the engagement part of the wedding process really didn't involve the couple that much. The the, the future husband and wife, they they really did, they were not players in this part. This was really their parents, because the weddings were arranged. And the father of the bride and the father of the husband, they would get together and they would compare notes and they would decide, is this going to be a good match? And the dowry was decided in. It was like a legal arrangement. And so the couple really were kind of off to the side while this was being taken care of. Now, I know some of you are looking like, you know, a mule looking at a new gate. You're thinking, the what? But but that was the way it was done. The engagement was really the parents working out an arrangement to bring their daughter and son together. And and so then that was done. Then came the second phase of the marriage process, which was the the betrothal. This was the the wedding ceremony, if you will. This is where the the groom and the bride are coming together and, and their family and friends are all gathered around and they are exchanging their vows. So this is where they really are coming together now. And, and they are you know, they're, they're exchanging their lifelong vows with one another. That very much like we do in our wedding ceremonies today. But, but this was just the second phase of the process. Because even after they had stood before witnesses and exchanged their wedding vows, the, the bride would go back home with their parents. Guys are thinking, that's a bummer. <laughs> but, And the husband was, during the betrothal period, they were considered legally to be married. In fact, if the husband died, that woman, though they had not physically consummated their relationship, would be considered a widow. You may remember in the story of Jesus' birth that Mary was betrothed to Joseph. Joseph. But you see, they had not come together because they were in that betrothal stage in which the young man is given a period of time to establish his business, to, to build a home for himself, for him and his bride. He had to, he had to prove that he was able to take this lady now and she could live under his roof and he'd have a business and that's what Joseph was doing as a carpenter before he would bring Mary. So then, then comes the big part. And sometimes this would be a long time. It might take months. Maybe a year after the betrothal, after the exchanging of the vows, before the couple would come together. And this is where the celebration, the wedding feast. This is a big deal. In fact, one commentary I was talking about said that the wedding feast was the most celebrated social event in Jewish culture and was an extended time of great happiness and festivity. Everybody looked forward to the day when the groom would be able to say, I'm ready. I got a good house. I got a good job. I can support this bride. I'm ready. And then they, he would get his friends and his family and and all the wedding, you know, guests. And they would have a big procession. And usually it would be at night. And they would go to the home of the bride. And and of course she's been waiting, and she's been waiting, and she's been longing. When will he ever get that house ready? You know. And I'm sure the ladies were patient, just like they are today. But anyway, but but. But the procession would make their way over to the bride's family's household and and, and that's where the, the bridegroom would receive the bride and, and she would have bridesmaids and they would all have uh, torches, beautiful torches that, that would light up the presence of the bride and, and, and mark her position in the procession. And they would all leave and march through the streets singing and celebrating all the way back to the groom's household and there they would begin to party. They would feast, and this, it wasn't over, over just in one occasion, not just for a day. In fact, you know, it's interesting in Luke's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 35, Jesus is talking about a, a master who leaves to go to a wedding, and, is, and, and it says his servants were to be watching, because, see, they didn't know when he'd come back. Now, if a person says, you know, I'm going to be going to a wedding today, you'd expect them to be back by nightfall. Well, back then, you didn't know. If somebody went to a wedding, they may be going for a week uh, to a wedding feast, because he could go on to eat and celebrate, dance and eat and celebrate and eat and watch TV. And all but anyway, celebrate. And so the feast was a big occasion. So now that I've kind of painted the picture of a Jewish wedding, it is against the backdrop of a, of a wedding feast that Jesus is talking about. The bride, The bridesmaids are waiting. And they're waiting. And let's see what Jesus says. Talking about the kingdom of God comparing the kingdom of God to this. In verse 1 of chapter 25, Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins. And and your translation may say bridesmaids. This translation uses virgins simply because it it was always socially acceptable for chaste young women to stand as bridesmaids and, and be selected to be bridesmaids. So, Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you. But go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding. And the door was shut. Afterward, The other virgins came and also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, assuredly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the son of man is coming. Now if you've been following me through the, all of that discourse, you know that Jesus has said before and he says again, be ready, be ready, be ready. You don't know the hour and you, or you don't know the day, you certainly won't know the hour. I am coming. And for those that are living during the end time, there will be events that there are signs, as I said, wars, cataclysmic disasters, cosmic events, uh, pestilence, there will be signs that will say, He is coming, He is near. But nobody, no one will know the exact moment. Jesus says, Be ready. So against this backdrop and using the illustration of this wedding feast and the procession of the bridegroom coming, we focus on these ten bridesmaids. I don't think there's much significance to the fact that Jesus split them down the middle. Now ten in the in the scriptures typically represents a completion. But but you know, the, the fact is half of them are ready, half are not. Let's focus on, on the characteristics of these bridesmaids and see what it is that Jesus is saying to, to the audience then, to you and me now, and certainly to the readers during the tribulation. Let's look at those who prudently prepare. Those that are described there beginning in verse uh, 2. Now, five of them were wise and five were foolish those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But look at verse 4. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. The wise bridesmaids prepare for the groom's return. Number one, they're in the right position. They're at the right place. They're at the bride's parents' house. They know He's he's coming soon. The word's out. He's coming soon. So they're, they're there. All of them are there. But especially the wise. They know that they're there. But then they are not only in the right position associated with the bride, but they are completely equipped, and I emphasize that because that's what Jesus has wanted you and me to see. It says there in verse 4, "...but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps." You see, in that day, as I described earlier, during the procession, the bridesmaid had a key role. They didn't just stand at the front of the stage and hold flowers and look pretty and gazingly at the bride adoringly or whatever. They, they had a function to play. They were all supposed to be there with their wedding attire on, but they all were equipped with special torches. I know the Scriptures say lamps, but if you look in the Gospel of John, when it talks about the the, the crowd that came to arrest Jesus in the garden at night, it says they were bringing lamps that were actually torches that were fed by by the the oil from flasks. If you carried the torch, you always carried a flask of oil that you kept saturating the wick. So they were equipped. They had what what was needed. You know, it's interesting in the Scriptures, oil is oftentimes associated with the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so, just thinking that way, the presence of the Holy Spirit is a key player in Christians being prepared for the coming of Christ. The wise person, and this is talking about people in general, not just the bridesmaids, but wise people prepare by faith for the Lord's return. How will we be ready? For there's no debate about the fact that Jesus is coming again. Just as sure as historically He came the first time as a baby in a manger, as the Son of God and died on the cross and was buried and raised the third day and ascended into heaven, just as sure as we know that occurred, He is coming again. In the Old Testament, time and time again, the prophets said... The Lord will return. The Messiah will come. Jesus prophesied, spoke of his return. Uh, the other gospel writers speak of that. And so we know the scripture says he's coming again. But how do we prepare? Number one, by reading and obeying his word and submitting to the lordship of Christ. Now, I don't know about you. Not knowing the day, not knowing the time, the hour, it could happen before I finish this message. It can happen before the sun sets today. It can happen in the, in the midst of the nighttime tonight when you're sleeping and comfortable in your bed. Listen, it can happen. The question is, are you ready? You know, Jesus gave us a glimpse in John chapter 14.21 about being ready. And, and He, he talked about the significance. Those who are true believers not only appreciate His Word, but they obey His Word. You want to know if you're ready? Just simply ask yourself, Am I reading God's word? Am I studying God's word? And if I am, am I obeying God's word? In John fourteen twenty one, Jesus says, He is the one who loves me, who has my commandments and keeps them. And he who does that is the one who loves me. And I tell you this there will there will be no person in heaven that does not love the Lord and whose life has not demonstrated their love for God by obeying the Word of God. But then also, another way that we prepare for the Lord's coming to be ready is by yielding to the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit. We have to be yielded to God's Spirit. In other words, what is the Spirit of God? We talk about, I'm saved. Jesus has forgiven me of my sins. I prayed and asked Him to forgive me of my sins. And 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 that's wonderful and great. But but salvation is more than that, ladies and gentlemen. Salvation is a lifetime commitment of following after Christ, led by His Holy Spirit abiding in you. When you were saved, those of you that are saved and know the Lord Jesus Christ, you prayed a prayer that not only asked the Lord to forgive you of your sins, but if you were genuine and you were complete in your effort to be saved, then you also said, Lord Jesus, I want you to come into my life. I want you to take control of my life. I want you not only to be my Savior, but I want you to be the Lord of my life. Now, pause just a second and think about what that means. You're saying to the Lord, I want you to dwell in me and I want you to take control of my mind. I want you to take control of my emotions. I want you to take control of my will. I want you to set the priorities of my life. Those wise bridesmaids Had the life-giving supply. If you think about that torch, the only thing kept that torch ablaze was the oil that they carried in their flask. And the only thing that gives life to a born-again believer of Jesus Christ is the presence of the Spirit of God abiding within them. And so Jesus is saying to everyone: be ready. Don't be found empty. As was the case with the foolish bridesmaids. And let's look at them for a second. Not only do we take interest in those who prudently prepare, but as we look at this parable, it's important for us to see the ones who pitifully pose. Now, I know you're thinking about posing like a glamour model, you know, posing on the runway or posing before cameras as they go in for, you know, the Emmys or whatever. But, but that's not what he's talking about there. I'm talking about the other ugly side of pose. I looked it up in the dictionary and pose. The verb pose means to pretend to be someone you're not. Are you a poser? You know, it's scary to think about in our culture in our society today, there have been stories about people who are really professional posers. There there are people who have been poser doctors. That's that's scary. People that have actually worked in hospitals and, and, and performed different medical procedures and never went to medical school. They got over on the establishment, created these false credentials, and when they're caught, it was, it was found out they were nothing but posers. They were being called doctor, but they weren't anything. Now, some of y'all think about, hmm, I guess some surgery kids relax, Eddie, just relax, okay? I know your doctor's not a poser, okay? But, but they're poser school teachers. People that have been in classrooms teaching. Had the respect of their peers and their 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 other teachers, and then all of a sudden, when there was a credentials check, they found out that the the, the supposed diploma they had was 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 bought. For posers. Now this will really get you shaken. We have actually been uncovered a few poser pilots. <laughs> People that have been in the cockpit of an airplane, flying an airplane, never went to flight school. They Googled it, got all that information, and ready to go. There are poser preachers out there, too. People that stand in the pulpit and pose as men who are called by God to preach the Word of God. I was listening with my dad to a very, very popular, I use the term loosely, preacher. Uh, I mean, a yeah, whole Coliseum of people listening to him, and they, everybody was totally enthralled, and and everybody was just old, just just oohing and ahhing about this fellow. And you know, I listened because I'd never really listened to him, but my dad had him turned on, and and, and so I, I started listening closely. And he was misusing scripture, and and you know, and, and he made very few references to to the word of God. And then I said, Dad, because I've been studying about this idea of poses, you know, Dad. This man is really not a preacher of the Word of God. And I got my Bible out and said, you know what he just said? And I showed him this. I said, that's not what the scripture says. He's misquoting the Word of God. And not only that, he very rarely makes any reference to the Word of God. He just uses it occasionally, very general. I'll tell you what he is, and he's successful, and he's really good at it. He's a, uh, positive, uh, what do you call him? Motivational speaker. Thank you. He is. He's a top-notch motivational speaker. If you want a good dose of of positive thinking, uh, he'll do it. He'll pump you up and make you feel like that you can conquer the world. You're on top of everything. But he's not a preacher of the Word of God. He's a poser. There are posers in all stages of life. So these false, these, these foolish bridesmaids only look the part. They were outwardly convincing. In verse 1 it says they all were at the, at the bridesmaids, at the bride's house. They were all there ready. They, they probably looked like they had the right attire on. They had their torches. They were, everybody was considering them to be legitimate as bridesmaids. But there was a problem. Outwardly, they were convincing. They looked like and act like and talk like bridesmaids. But the truth is, they were a poser. They were posers. You know, Jesus talked about earlier in chapter 22, you remember we were uh, examining it, in another wedding, a king's wedding feast, a wedding feast for his son. Jesus says the king came in, he had invited people from every walk of life to come to this great grand feast that he was having for the wedding of his son. And he says when the, when the king came in, he looked over the, the hall where all the people were assembled in this great feast. And he saw one fellow who was there who didn't have the required our tire, wedding attire. He was a poser. He was there, but, but he was not. He didn't meet the requirements. And you remember in Matthew 22, Jesus said that the king told his servants, throw him out of here. Throw him out of here. And In fact, cast him into that place of weeping and gnashing. I mean, punish him. These brides, foolish bridesmaids, only looked the part. They were woefully neglectful and unqualified. Why? Because as we look there, it says in verse 3, Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. How can you burn a lamp when you don't have oil? How can you function as a bridesmaid to light the way and the presence of the bride if your lamp doesn't even burn? In verse 5 it says, But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. That's simply because they don't know when he's coming. And in verse 6, and at the midnight cry, at a at midnight a cry was heard. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. You see, Jesus is emphasizing the fact, you know he's coming, but you don't know when. And everybody's kind of relaxed. These these foolish poser bridesmaids are are, are they They're not even worried about we need some oil. He's going to be coming soon. Well, they fell asleep with the rest of them. But when the the bridegroom came on the scene. Then they began to panic and say, we need to go get some oil. First of all, it says "Then all the, the, the in verse 7, then all the virgins arose and trimmed their, their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, give us some, oil, some of you oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, no, lest there should not be enough for us and you. But go to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. My goodness, here it is. The very moment they've been waiting for. The grand event that they should have been prepared for. While they were out scrambling around, begging, it never does say they found any oil. It just simply says they came back. But while they were gone, the bridegroom came. He received the bride, the faithful bridesmaids, and they left. In fact, they went into the wedding hall and they closed the doors. These poser, false bridesmaids were woefully neglectful and unqualified. As you translate that into the general populace of people, the Bible, I believe, is warning people of every age, foolish persons settle for superficial faith. Let me say that again. Foolish persons settle for superficial faith. If you think those bridesmaids were absolutely foolish, consider people who live their lives on this earth with some awareness that Jesus is coming again. And they settle for what is a superficial faith. You know, Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 13, the parables of the sower. The gospel seed will be sown but as seed falls on different types of soil, the gospel seed will fall on a variety of types of hearts. Some hearts will be hardened towards God and the seed will not grow. Some, some hearts will be uh, controlled by the devil and his demons and they'll quickly snatch away any good news so that people won't hear. Some, some of the hearts will be choked by worldly obsession and materialistic desires and selfish gain so that the seed of the Gospel will not grow. So even though you get an evangelist like Billy Graham who's sowing seeds on all the hearts of America, there are only a few hearts that will be like good soil where the seed will take hold and grow and bear fruit of salvation in that chapter, he also taught the parable of the wheat and the tares. Where a man sows his field with wheat seeds, but then his enemy sneaks in there at night and sows weed seeds, tares. And the tares begin to grow up right in the midst of the wheat. Now the difficult thing for the farmer is, oh my goodness, my wheat is infested with weeds. His servant said, Lord, do you want us to, you want us to go in and just pull out all the weeds? And he said, no, you'll destroy the rest of the wheat. But he says there will come a harvest. At the harvest time, there will be a separation. You see, there are a lot of people that that live in this community and people across this country. If you were to ask them, "Are you a Christian?" they'll say, oh, "Well, as a matter of fact, I am." Oh yeah, what tell me about? It. Well, you know, I remember once saying a little prayer and writing my name on a card, and yeah, I, I, I'm a Christian. Um, but you see, tragically. They may claim to be a Christian. They may talk about being saved. They may think they're going to heaven. But in reality, they have fooled themselves. Tragically, their lives are void of the Lord. Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 7 very pointedly when He says there's, there are two ways. He says one is a narrow way. In fact, in verse 13 of chapter 7, He says, Enter by the narrow gate, speaking of salvation in heaven. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. In John's Gospel, in First John, in his epistle, in First John, John tells us that for us to know with confidence that we're truly saved, there must be the presence. Of Christ in our lives this is what he says in First John chapter 5 verse 11 he says and this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son listen carefully to verse 12 he who has the son has life notice he doesn't say he who prayed a little prayer he who signed his name on a card Or, he doesn't even say, he whose name is on a church roll. That's not what, listen to what he's saying. He says, he who has the son, capitalized son of God, has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. This is the separation between wise people and foolish people. Wise people understand that the scripture teaches that in order to be qualified to go to heaven your sins have to be forgiven you have to believe upon the lord jesus christ he's the only way john 14 6 jesus says i am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father but by me the scriptures tell us abundantly over and over that it is only through the shed blood of jesus christ that our sins are washed away but then in salvation ladies and gentlemen It's not just a matter of being saved from our sins. It's a matter of trusting Jesus Christ to be the Lord and Master of your life. And if Jesus does not live in your heart, we're not saved. Paul said in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, he says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. That's what salvation and true salvation really is about. It's about coming to a point where we give our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ and we yield ourselves to Him. Listen, Christianity is not just a one-time occurrence, becoming a Christian. Listen, it's a lifelong process of following after the Lord. That's why in Luke 9, 23, the Lord Jesus says, If any man come after Me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Me. Did He say that you do that one day? No, He says you do that every day. It is a lifestyle. Dr. Billy Graham was asked about Christians in church and he made a statement once and we heard this recently in a video clip, I believe, by Dr. Danny Akin. Dr. Graham made the statement that he believed that about 50% of the churchgoers in America were truly unsaved. 50%. A few years later, somebody asked him, Dr. Graham, do you still believe that? And he said, No. He says, I believe the number is greater. What does it mean to be a born-again believer? What does it mean to be ready? And not be left behind? It is to know that you have the abiding presence of God's Spirit living in your heart because you have truly yielded yourself by faith to follow after Him. And when Christ lives in you and He lives in me, let me tell you something, He will naturally lead you to pray you have a desire to pray and talk to God on a daily basis. When Christ is living in you and me, He will also generate in us a desire, a hunger for the truth of God's Word, and we will study the Word of God. We'll want to know what God says. We're not interested in what Dr. Phil, Dr. Oz, Oprah, or anybody else out there, we don't have to know what CNN has to say. We want to know what God says. Christ in us will generate in us a desire to look forward to, yearn for every opportunity we have to gather together with God's people, to worship Him, to give of our resources, to support His kingdom causes, to tell others about Him, to serve Him. Listen, these are the things that Christ dwelling in you and me will do. Jesus said in John fifteen five He says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. And he that abides in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from Me, you can do nothing. So what makes you a foolish person versus a wise person? A foolish person simply rationalizes to themselves, Oh yeah, I'm I'm a Christian. I I know about Jesus. Yeah, He's cool. Someone once said, The distance between heaven and hell is about 18 inches. The distance from your head to your heart. Dear friend, you can have Jesus in your head. You can know that He was God's Son. You can know that He died for sin. You can know that He's coming again. You can know a lot about Jesus factually. But until He has taken up a residence in your heart and lives and abides in you daily and you can see and sense and feel and know and be directed by His Spirit, then you have every reason to be concerned should He come today. We've looked at the prudent preparers. We've looked at the pitiful poses. And it is pitiful. I feel for these foolish bridesmaids. They've looked forward to this moment. So they thought. They really thought they were going to get in. Get over and get in. And enjoy the feast and all the celebration. But they thought they could just kind of ride in on the oil and the, tail of the coattails of their other bridesmaids. Just kind of like some people think they can kind of ride on into heaven on the coattails of their godly grandmothers and godly parents. And, oh, I come from a Christian family. Surely I'm going to go to heaven. Don't be so quick. Those who prudently prepare, those who pitifully pose, but we need to stop and consider as we close. He who perfectly judges. The bridegroom is portraying Jesus. Just as sure as the bridegroom is coming... Jesus is coming again. And according, he will come to judge according to his perfect timing. I thought it was interesting. At midnight. <laughs> Who would have thought to come and receive your bride at midnight? That's when he chose to come. The bridegroom chooses to come when he wants to. Let me tell you something. Jesus has got a date set. And he will come at his perfect time time that's why in in chapter 24 verse 44 jesus says therefore you also be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour when you do not expect it there are going to be multitudes of people who are going to be flabbergasted absolutely shocked totally confused and caught off guard because he's going to come just like that and they weren't ready And here the Bible tells us that every person, every person, no exception, every person ever born has an appointment with God. For the church, it could be the rapture. When is it going to happen, Pastor? I don't know. It could happen today. It could happen tomorrow. But I know it will happen quickly. You won't have time to prepare to get ready. You just better live ready. For those living in the generation of of the Great Tribulation... They know He's coming, but they won't know exactly when. Like the bridesmaids, they were asleep. Thinking, oh well, we can relax. He's not going to be coming tonight. Boom! There He is. But there's also another appointment whereby you will stand before God. And Hebrews 9.27 tells us, It is appointed unto man once to die. And then you notice what He says after that? Then the judgment. It'll happen rapid fire. If you're not ready, you won't have time to get ready if you wait to that moment. You say, oh, but I'm young and I'm vibrant, and I got life, and I... Oh my goodness, you read the newspapers, don't you? You see the news stories. Two precious teenage girls coming to America to experience the American way and, and landing in an airport, you know, and, and, and boom, just like that. Snuffed out of this world. Nineteen. Vibrant, healthy. Firemen fighting a fire. Doing a a gallant thing. And just the shift of a wind. Instantly these fathers, husbands taken out of this world. Just like that. You don't know when you will stand before God. But I promise you this, dear friend. You will. I will. And these bridesmaids, these foolish bridesmaids did not have time. To go get prepared. They were scrambling around looking for oil. In verse 10 and 11, as we look at Jesus' righteous requirements, His perfect timing, but His righteous requirements. Jesus will judge according to His righteous standards. In verse 10, And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with Him. They were qualified. They had the lamps. He said, Hey. Come on in, bridesmaids. The, the feast is come on in, you're qualified. And after they all went in, look what it says. The door was shut. You know what? That that because we touched on this just recently, but it makes me think about Noah. Noah priest for 120 years in an evil, fallen world, not one convert. God was warning the people, the flood is coming, the flood is coming, the flood is coming, the flood is coming. And the people laughed at Noah. They made fun of him. Ridiculed him. But guess what? There came a day. There came a day. Just as surely as today is the day, a day, there came a day when God said to that old preacher, okay, you preached enough. Say amen. Get on the boat. All the animals were loaded. Noah's family got on. I believe Noah probably was the last one to walk up that ramp and look back with sorrowful tears streaming down his eyes because he knew what was coming next. And the Bible says, God shut the door. God shut the door. And no amount of prying and beating and begging would open the door of that ark as millions of people saw the heavens open up with deluge like they had never seen, and waters, underground water springs began to spout up, there came floods like they had never seen. They saw trees being covered as they were paddling through the waters. They saw mountains being covered, they were beating on the ark, they were begging, Oh no, we're sorry, we understand, we know it's true, and one by one they drown. It's too late. Jesus saying, "For those foolish bridesmaids, there came a day when the bridegroom did come. they were not ready, and he shut the door, and you don't see anything whereby he says, Well, you know, y'all did make an effort. You did try. Look what he says. It's absolutely chilling when you think about the Son of God, the creator of the universe, the absolute sovereign ruler. And He said in verse 12, He answered and said to them, Listen, most assuredly, when Jesus said most assuredly, He says, I know one thing for sure. I don't know you. I don't even know you. And with His just justice, We're told in the Scriptures, and I won't go back and read it, but in Matthew chapter 13, we're told that those who are faithful, who are prepared, are given eternal life. Chapter 25, verse 34, we're told that those who are prepared, those who are faithful, it says the king says, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you and from the foundation of the world. John chapter 14, verses one through three, Jesus said, just before he he was crucified, told his disciples, if he says, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, you also believe in me, for in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. I say glory, hallelujah. Folks, do you understand the wonderful, joyful promise Jesus said? Listen, I've gone to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I'm coming again. I live with the reality of the hope, ladies and gentlemen, that even when death comes my way, I don't fear it, I don't dread it, because I know my Lord has a place that He's prepared, and I live with that wonderful hope, but for those who are not Ready for those who are not ready. Matthew chapter thirteen verse forty-one. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness will he will cast them into the furnace of fire. Speaking of hell, there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. So for those people that say, "Look, I'm not afraid when I die. Just stop existing. I don't have to worry about anything wrong." The Scripture says you will continue to exist. You will continue to live in your soul. Your soul will be conscious. Your soul will be able to feel. And the place that is ready for those who are not prepared is a hideous place. In chapter 24, I'm just going to quickly touch on these. Speaking of the unfaithful servant, it says, And and, and the Lord will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What waits for those who foolishly choose not to genuinely put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and are not ready when He comes again? Verse 50, or excuse me, chapter 25, verse 30. And they are cast and cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Same chapter, verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 46. And these will go away into eternal punishment. Somebody said, How in the world can a loving God send people to hell? He doesn't. God created hell as a place of eternal punishment for the devil and his demons. That's what it says. But God is holy and just and He cannot and will not allow sin into the presence of Almighty, holy, righteous God. So it stands to reason because He's just and holy. If a person rejects Him all through their life and chooses to come up with reasons why they don't want to yield their life to the Lord and make Him the Lord of their lives, and when He does greet them, when He does confront them, whether it be through death or through the the, the return of the Lord, then <clears throat> there's only one place. There's only one place. There, There are only two possible destinations for a soul to exist for eternity. For those who are washed in the blood of Christ and are genuine believers and are ready for His return, they will abide with the Lord in the presence of the Lord for eternity in a place that knows no pain, no suffering, no absolute joy and bliss, activity and service and splendor forever and ever and ever. Eternity is eternity. But it's interesting, just as the Scripture says, that those who are faithful and ready are promised eternal life, the same word eternal is used for those who are not ready and who are cast into the lake of fire called hell. It says they will suffer. They won't suffer for a year. They won't suffer for a decade. They won't suffer for a century. They will suffer over and over and over. And they'll feel it. They'll be in torment. They'll be in agony. There'll be no hope. And it says that will go on for eternity. How long is eternity? It's as far as the east is from the west. In other words, there is no End. We said, but preacher, this is this is hard. We shouldn't preach such scary stuff. No, no. This is love, ladies and gentlemen. This is love. What would be bad and evil is if God had chosen not to warn us. What would be wrong is for us to walk through life in the darkness and drop off and never know. How? To receive forgiveness of our sins. Look at the times He warns over and over. Be ready. You don't know the day or the hour when the Son of Man comes, but He's coming. Be ready. You don't know the day or the hour that the Son of Man is coming. Be ready. You don't know the day that God has appointed for you when death will come your way. Be ready. Do you understand what Jesus is saying? He's saying, I'm coming. I'm coming. I love you, so be ready. Those are the messages. He's saying that to those people in the tribulation time. He's giving them a warning. Get ready, get ready. I'm coming. Look at the signs. You see that? But He's saying it to people today. And the tragic, tragic reality is some people will look at this and say, well, that's just religion. That's just mythical talk. You can choose to believe that if you want to. But I don't. That that works out pretty good. As long as you're healthy and prosperous and things are going your way and you're going along through life. But the tragedy of that thinking is it's false. It's a lie. And one day when you are like those bridesmaids, those foolish bridesmaids, and the door to heaven before you has been absolutely shut tight, then the absolute horror of the reality of saying, oh my goodness, it was true. Be ready, folks. Live in a state of readiness that should He come today, you know you are ready to welcome Him and to celebrate His coming, knowing what lies ahead for us as believers in Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Heavenly Father, sometimes it is hard, Lord, to see the grim picture that Your Word paints prophetically for the generations in the future. But not just generations in the future. Lord, we live in a country that has virtually turned its back on You. That has made excuses for sin. In fact, they practically deny that You even exist. So Lord, just from reasoning and looking at our nation around us and just looking at the signs of our culture and the symptoms of our culture... It doesn't take a rocket scientist, Lord, to, to speculate that the vast majority of Americans are not ready. They need to be ready. And Lord, I pray that every person in sound of my voice right now having heard the truth of Your Word and Your Holy Spirit speaking to their hearts, Oh God, I pray that before it's eternally too late, they will come, be led by Your Spirit, to make a genuine profession of faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And to commit to live for you for the rest of their days on this earth. That they might please you. That you, they may bear fruit for you. And that they might enjoy the wonderful peace and joy and satisfaction and, and completion and all that comes with heaven. I pray that, Lord. For Christians who have become compromised in their living are dabbling in the things of the world, thinking they can live in both worlds. Lord, they're not ready. They'll be held accountable for their sinful activities and relationships, habits, and because you see all, you know all. Nothing escapes your eye. I pray that today will be a day of rededication. That in a, an, an act of making themselves ready, they will confess and repent of any sin in their lives. Lord, we know we nobody's perfect. We all will make mistakes. We all will disappoint you. But we understand too that you are God of forgiveness and grace. That even when your children sin, you are quick to forgive if we confess our sins and repent. So Lord, I pray, do your work here today to make this body of believers ready should you come today. But whenever that time is, Lord, uh, you know. I pray you will find us ready. We thank you, Lord. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.